Well, good morning and welcome to this, our second Sunday in the Gospel of John, and welcome to Pentecost Sunday. This is a wonderful day in the life of the church, and uh, we are going to try and tie that all together today with the uh, Gospel of John, the second chapter. If you have your Bibles or your, your books that uh, were given, the Gospel of John, turn to chapter 2, if you would. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. That's a long time ago. We grew up in a very humble surroundings. We lived in a little house down in Waterford, Michigan. And uh, my dad had built the house and he had bought an acre of land and the back of it backed up to a swamp. I was the youngest of three boys. I don't know uh, what there is about the youngest. Our pastor is the youngest of four children. I think it's because we have had to, le- to learn how to survive with our older siblings. I have an older brother, and you might pray for him. His name's Dave. He's uh, eight years older than I am. He's in hospice care in Florida right now. But uh, back when I was about six or seven, which would have made him 14 or 15, he got into a tiff with another kid in our neighborhood. And it was over something really dumb. But they decided they were going to settle their dispute by having a fight down at the swamp. Now my brother was really angry with this kid. And so he enlisted me. Like I can do anything at six or seven. The time was set for the fight. And just before he was to head to the swamp, he said, Steve, come here. He had gone and he had found my dad's hatchet. And he says, you're going to take this hatchet and you're going to hide behind that big willow tree down there. And when I give you the sign, I forget what the sign was, you jump out and give me that hatchet because I'm going to kill that kid. I stood behind that willow tree with my six-year-old arms just trembling. But God was with us that day. The other kid never showed. (laughs) I was almost, I was almost an accessory to a homicide at six years old. I did learn a valuable lesson that day. And the valuable lesson I learned was, you don't always have to do what your brother tells you to do. Now our story is really the opposite of that today, and if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you, uh, 
involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Father, we thank you today for the recording of this miracle, the first miracle of Jesus. And I pray today that you would speak to each one of our hearts and show us that you still want to do a miracle in our lives. And your Holy Spirit wants to come and fill us and empower us and change us and make us into the people that you want us to be. Bless now this message and may you... uh, like you did on that first Pentecost, take the words of this preacher and apply them to the hearts of the hearers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Those few words of Mary at the wedding feast are just as true for us today as they were back then. But the question is, what can we expect when we do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Today's story of the turning water into wine teaches us, I believe, several transforming lessons about personally being personally obedient to God's voice. The first lesson is, doing what God tells you to do is not always easy. Notice what Jesus asked these servants to do. He said, fill the water jars with water. Now, I'd like you to notice several things. First of all, these were not drinking water jars. These were washing water jars. They were there for the ceremonial washing according to the law. They weren't the clay pots, which were the common things, but they were stone pots. And they represented the law that was given Uh, to Moses on the tablets of stone. Each one of these pots probably weighed somewhere around 100 pounds. It says they, they held between 20 and 30 gallons of water each. Now, I think that water weighs the same today as it did back then. And it's about eight and a third pounds per gallon. That means the water alone would have weighed anywhere from 165 to 250 pounds. If I were to ask some of the men of the church to fill a water pot with water, I know what they'd do. They'd get a hose, they'd go find the closest spigot, they'd bring the hose over, but they couldn't do it then. They either had to take the pots to the water source or they had to carry the water. It was a daunting task 
to fill that. This water was for ceremonial washing according to the law. And, and so this, just think of this as bathtub water. Now the symbolism in this is that up to this point, the Jews have lived under the law. They had to be washed from their sins. But Jesus took the washing water and he turned it into wine, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he did, the, uh, the uh, bridegroom was confronted by the head of the feast. And he said, you have saved the best till last. And that's what the Bible is all about. Jesus was saved to the last. He's the best. Now... I don't know much about wine. I don't drink. Uh, but I thought, if I'm going to preach on wine, I better know a little bit of something about it. And uh, I, I see that these pots, they were between 20 and 30 gallons. There were six of them. So I averaged it out. I said 25 gallons a pot, which brought it to 150 gallons of water, which was turned into wine. I happened to be at the Myers store. And if you were at the Myers store the same day I was and you saw me in the wine department, I was not buying wine. I was doing research. And I saw that every bottle of wine is 750 milliliters. I don't know why they don't do it in ounces, but when I figured it out, those 150 gallons, it would equal 757 bottles of wine. Well, I have a friend that owns a store that sells fine wine. And so I asked my friend, I said, uh, friend, what would the cheapest bottle of wine in your store sell for? He said, five bucks. I said, okay, what would the most expensive bottle of wine in your store sell for? He said, $200. Well, they were expecting $5 wine. Figuring that out of 757 bottles of wine, that'd be $3,785. But when Jesus blessed it, it became the best wine. And at $200 a bottle, that's $151,400. And I want to tell you, friends, when Jesus comes into your life, when the Holy Spirit fills you, you go from being a $3,785 Christian to being a $151,000 Christian. Praise the Lord. It's not always easy. I think of Dr. John Bowling, our past president of uh, Olivet Nazarene University. Dr. Bowling, when he had been there about 15 years, decided that he was going to do something totally uncharacteristic for him. He decided that he was going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. 
He uh, made the arrangements, bought the equipment, airfare. He'd never climbed mountains before. He arrived at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. He was going to be with a group of other travelers. He looked up at that 19,000-foot peak, and he said, what am I doing? I'm a college president. I live on campus, and I drive to work. But he started out. The climb was very difficult for him, and there had been another group not long before that who had had a fatality, and so they had to take a more difficult route. And it came to a place called the Barranco Wall. This wall is uh, not real high, 800 and some feet, but it's almost straight up. And uh, he, they started up this Barranco Wall, and they said to him, they said two things, don't look up and don't look down, just keep going. He said, I started out pretty good, but I got about a third of the way up, and I just couldn't go any further. He said, I had lost my strength. And somebody yelled to me, John, are you okay? He said, I don't think so. He said, all of a sudden, he saw, just from out of the corner of his eye, a figure moving down the wall. And it was their guide, one of the, uh, the uh, guides from that country named Freddie. He said, Freddie came over and he put his arm, his hand on my arm. And he said, John, take a deep breath. It's Freddie, I'm here with you. It's going to be okay. He says, just having Freddie there, my heart calmed down. And he said, uh, Freddie said, now, John, slip your pack off and give it to me. And John said, no, I can't do that. He said, John said, the unwritten rule of the mountain is everybody carries their own weight. And Freddie got a little more insistent, and he said, John, give me your pack. Dr. Bowling said, I slipped my pack off and handed it to Freddie, and Freddie, who already had a pack, threw it on top of his, and now he was carrying two packs. And he said, John, just follow me. Take it one step at a time. He said, with the weight lifted off my back, the assurance of Freddie being there with me, he said, I started to move up that wall, and slowly I made it up. And sometime later, just following in the footsteps of Freddie, I crested the top of the Bronco Wall. All the rest of our team was there, and they didn't make fun of me. They didn't say, oh, Mr. College President couldn't do it. They were excited that I made it. Nobody made fun of him. You see, Jesus may ask us to do some difficult things, but when he does, his Holy Spirit will be there to encourage us. He'll take our load from us. He'll guide us. He'll he'll. Be with us along the way. He may be asking you to do something difficult. He may be asking you to stop doing something that is dishonoring to him or, or um, not good for you or your family. 
He may ask you to start doing something that would honor him. He may ask you to repair a relationship or make a restitution. But whatever God asks you to do, it's not always going to be easy, but it's always going to be best. Second lesson I learned from this scripture is doing what God tells you to do always involves faith. Jesus never caused a miracle to happen that did not center around faith. Jesus could have said some magic words, waved his hands over the, the uh, washing water pots. They didn't even have to have water in them. But he never worked a miracle that did not involve faith. Faith, you see, is the one thing that pleases God every time. The book of uh, Hebrews says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I believe the water did not turn into wine when they just filled the, filled the jugs with water. I don't believe it turned into wine when the servants drew some out. I believe it turned into wine as they walked. Can you imagine those servants? What is this guy doing? We're going to get fired. We're supposed to be taking him wine to taste, and we've got water. But remember the words of Jesus' mother, do what he tells you to do. And when they handed it off to the master of the feast, I believe that's when it turned into wine. Jesus wants to do a miracle in your life and in my life. He wants to turn the common elements of your life into something very special. He wants to take the brokenness of your past and turn it into a bright future. He wants to take the hopelessness you might have and turn it into hopefulness. He wants to take your sorrow and turn it into joy. But finally, doing what God tells you to do always produces terrific results. Aren't you glad of that today? When we do what God tells us to do, he isn't going to mess our life up. He's going to change our life into something wonderful. I can imagine the embarrassment of this wedding if they had run out of food and beverage. I uh, always stop in to the kitchen for a funeral dinner. And almost invariably, the workers in the kitchen say, I hope we have enough food. I have yet to come to a funeral dinner where they didn't have enough food. And I don't know if Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes, uh, let me think, the rolls and ham, or, or what he does. But imagine the embarrassment they had. But we don't have a clue of the wonderful things, the terrific things that God has in store for our life when we just do what he tells you to do. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he's our guide. He tells us, he speaks to us in that still, small voice. He guides us. 
And sometimes what he tells us to do is difficult, and it involves faith, but it always produces terrific results. Richard was a farmer in Lenaway County. Successful farmer. He was active in his church. He was in his mid to late 40s. God tapped him on the shoulder and said, Richard, I want you to preach the gospel. It wasn't a convenient time for his life. It wasn't an easy time for him. He had to dispose of his farm and his equipment. He had to step out on faith and move his wife uh, to Colorado Springs to go to Nazarene Bible College. And for three years, he worked a, just a menial job to get by. And, and uh, graduation was approaching he read in the Eastern Michigan District uh, paper that we used to have that a little church, not far from where his farm was, he didn't attend that church, was uh, without a pastor. The church had gone through a very difficult time with their pastor and, and he had to be removed and he lost his license and a lot of the people scattered and there was just a few people left and a building that needed a lot of upkeep. And a lot of repair. He called our district superintendent, Dr. Knight, and he said, Dr. Knight, I, I see that uh, this church is open, and uh, would you consider me for that church? And he said, well, Richard, he said, it's interesting that you call because I'm meeting with them tonight to close the church. It's just gone too far. And Richard said, uh, well, Dr. Knight, God spoke to me about pastoring that church, and would you just mention my name and see if they might have me come? He said, well, they can't even pay anything. He says, that's all right, I'll, I'll work. He mentioned the farmer's name, Richard, and the people in that area knew him, and he said, he's willing to come here and be our pastor. And those few people said, yes, we'll take him Richard came and moved in there and began working that community and one by one more people came and, and pretty soon they, they outgrew that little building that they were in and they had to move into a, a school building and the congregation kept growing and they began to look and like a farmer would, he didn't look for a couple acres, he bought 80 acres. They built a building, and our very own John Livengood is pastoring that church today. My daughter, my son-in-law, my grandkids attend that church and are learning about Jesus because Richard said, it's not easy, but I'm going to do what God told me to do. Look at what the world promises. It promises riches. It promises security. It promises happiness. But then when we get that, we realize we don't really have anything and it doesn't bring any real satisfaction. It offers fame. But the applause soon dies out and the cheers soon turn to jeers. It promises power, but it corrupts and loses hold of what we long for. Friends, 
God is still in the miracle-working business. Listen to me. God is still in the miracle-working business. He is still in the business of transforming the common and ordinary into new wine. He is in the business of taking broken and twisted limbs and lives and making them new again. But the greatest miracle that happens isn't the spectacular with big-name people, but everyday people like us that just simply do what Jesus tells us to do. They set aside their own provisions, their own solutions, their own desires, their own expectations, and they simply do what Jesus tells them to do. And the miracle continues to happen. I heard a poem years ago that talked about the difference that Jesus will make in our life, the Holy Spirit when he comes. It goes, "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to spend much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar now two. Who'll make it two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once. Three dollars twice. Going for three. But from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up all the strings, he played a melody pure sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now, what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once. Three thousand twice. Going and gone, said he. The people cheered and some of them cried, We don't quite understand what changed its worth. And the man replied, The touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune, Battered and scarred with sin, Is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, Much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, the game and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never quite understands the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand.